Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. That's uh, where we are. We're going to finish our series on Obadiah today. We've been uh, looking at them over the last three weeks. We went uh, part by part. I think what we do one through uh, nine or ten, and then or nine, and then ten through fourteen, and then fifteen through twenty-one. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and really, what it is is it's it's looking at God's judgment against the Edomites and then His promise to restore Israel. The context of the book is that Israel had just, or Jerusalem had just been destroyed and Judah had been kind of sacked. And so uh, the Edomites were uh, a nation that were kind of uh, just constantly the enemies of Israel and they kind of contributed to the sacking of Jerusalem and the defeat of, uh, of Judah. And so uh, God brings on this judgment against the Edomites that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the entire book and kind of ask the question, what, what does this say about God? If you have ever been in a Bible study with me or community group, uh, you know that that question is always there. Whenever we look at a passage of Scripture, I always ask the question, what is this passage, what is this verse, this book, what is this telling us about God? If, if we believe that the Bible is how the God of the universe has revealed himself to us, then whenever we open it and whenever we read any portion of it, we should ask ourselves that question. What is this telling me about God? And what we find in the book of Obadiah is God reveals quite a bit about himself in this book. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of focused on Israel and Edom and kind of the situation going on there and kind of the impacts and all of that stuff. But today we're going to look at the attributes of God that are revealed in the book of Obadiah. Now, I'm only going to talk about four of them, but there are more than four. So what I would challenge you to do is open up the book of Obadiah and read it this week. It's only 21 verses. You can do it. Um, but I want you to find the attributes of God that are listed in this book because there are more than the four that I'm going to talk about today. Okay, the four that I'm going to talk about today are... That God is omniscient, God is sovereign, God is just, and God is merciful. Okay? And by the way, if you didn't know this, in the bulletin, maybe you come in, you don't grab a bulletin, we put notes in there, we put a little blanks, and so you can fill it out and take notes and all of that stuff. Uh, that's on the little shelf back there by where you walk in. So if you, uh, if you don't have one, feel free to grab one, and um, let's go from there. But first, let's, uh, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you together with, um, with this church. God, we thank you that you have called us all here this morning, uh, that we get to uh, worship you in song. We get to worship you uh, through the preaching of your word. God, we thank you so much uh, that you have given these to us. We thank you that you accept our worship even though, even though we're sinners, even though we failed you and rebelled against you, shaken our fist at you. God, we thank you that you still accept our worship. We thank you that even though we're sinners, Christ died for us. And, and that by, by repenting and, and putting our faith in Christ, that we can be your son and your daughter. God, we pray this morning that we would be focused entirely on you, that we would not be distracted by the things of this world, the things that will pass away, but that we will be in awe of who you are and that we will worship you with everything that we have, with all that we are. God, you are good, you are kind, you are merciful, you are sovereign, you are omniscient, you're just, and you are our God. Father, we love you, we praise you, and worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to look at is that God is omniscient. So that's the, that's the first blank. If you've got your deal, uh, go ahead and put in omniscient there. If you know how to spell it, I don't, uh, but my computer does, so it got it fixed up for me. Um, so what omniscient means, God is omniscient, it, it means that, that God knows everything. Okay, it's, it's just a long word for saying God knows everything. He knows everything. Literally everything, God knows it. And you find this in Obadiah verse 1. It says this, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Okay, verse 1. Right there at the beginning, uh, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, we read this, we, we really break it down. What we see, this is God saying something about Edom, right? We can all agree on that. This is God saying something about Edom. But notice this. This is God giving a vision of the future to his prophet, right? So, is Obadiah, God gives this vision to Obadiah. He, Obadiah, here's what I want you to say. Here's, here's what you need to know and what you need to declare. This tells us something about God, right? Now, I, I understand that we can get distracted by, by what God then says about Edom, but this tells us something about God. It tells us that he's a God that knows the future. And, and he can tell you what the future holds. And he can also tell you, which we find at the end of the book, he can also tell you that everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to, to be all right. God can say, I write history. I know everything that is going to turn out. I, I know how it's going to work out. And I'm telling you, it's going to be fine. You're going to be okay. And that's one of the reasons why we read the Bible. We read, you know, we read the Bible, we read the prophecies, knowing that, that when it looks like the world is going off the rails, like everything is going beyond repair, we can remember that God knows, really indeed, that God wrote the future. And that's what we see in Obadiah. Remember, remember the situation that the Jews were in. The holy city had just been sacked and destroyed. The temple is ripped apart. They're sitting there, you know, I mean, in terrible, horrible violence has been done against their people. They probably had no hope. They were probably questioning where God was or why he would allow it. They are probably questioning all of this. And then you get Obadiah and it says, yeah, it, it was awful and, and God brought his judgment, but everything is going to be okay. We can go to the scriptures, you, you and I today, we can go to the scriptures and we can find comfort in them. Now, I would say that that's not the only reason we should go. There are some verses that aren't necessarily super comforting or encouraging in every single situation that we're in. But we can go to the scriptures and be comforted. Isaiah chapter 46 says this. And really, this is a basic lesson. I think every kid in Sunday school learns that God knows everything. Right? That's just something that children learn and they should learn that. Isaiah chapter 46, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Our God, the God revealed in the Scriptures, declares. He declares things. He doesn't just know things. He's not just aware of how things are going to to come to be, how everything will pan out. He declares it. He knows the end of the script because he's the one writing it. He knows where where things are heading. He he declares it from ancient times, things that that aren't, aren't even done yet. And so as an example, 700 years before Jesus was ever born, 700 years before he was born, Isaiah gives a detailed account of the crucifixion. You can find it in Isaiah chapter 53. He gives a detailed account of the crucifixion up to the point where it said that his clothes would be divided among the soldiers. 700 years before it happened. God knows the future of Edom because he knows the future of everyone. And he knows the future of everyone because he declared it. He's the one that set it to be. He's the one that that turned it into a reality. That's why he says in verse 7 of Obadiah, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. As we read the Bible, something that you'll find is that God will use the past tense when he's talking about an event that will take place in the future. Okay, and only God can do that. Okay, so uh, think about it like this. If, if uh, those of you who are married, if, if, if your wife says to you, hey, did you, did you take the trash out? It's really full, right? And you say, yes, I have taken the trash out because I'm going to do it as soon as the commercial comes on. Now you laugh because you know that that doesn't work, right? You know it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work that way because your word is not as good as God's. It doesn't work that way because you are not God. You can't make something happen. Remember a few months ago, we were talking about Abraham, and we said that once God says something, it becomes a reality. It's not as though that God is just aware of what will occur. God makes it occur. When he says something will happen, it becomes a reality, not a possibility. He has declared it, and therefore it will be he's not predicting the future he's writing it in fact he's already written it when god says this is going to happen oftentimes he'll use the past tense in the scripture as if it had already occurred right and so um i the prophecy in isaiah isaiah chapter 53 this is a perfect example of it 700 years before jesus was born right we talked about this it talks about the crucifixion gives incredible detail That prophecy is written in the past tense, right? It's written in the past tense as though it had already happened, even though Isaiah, the prophet, was the one writing it, and Jesus came to be about 700 years after Isaiah wrote his book. But it's written in the past tense. This is our God. Our God who who writes the future. The Old Testament includes, you know, the smallest details which are fulfilled in history. You know, the the birthplace of Jesus that's recorded in the Old Testament. Think about that. Now, as basic as this is, we have to know that there are 
scholarly theologians, pastors, authors, you know, they're, they're writing all kinds of stuff, it, um, and, and churches who believe that God does not know everything, okay? Um, if you, you can ask any child, you can go downstairs to boot camp, you can ask any kid down there, if God knows everything, and they'll say, absolutely. They'll give you some version of yes. And the thing is, is that those children know more than, than these theologians and these scholars who claim that God doesn't. They know more than people like Dr. Pinnock or John Sanders, right? These men believe in something. It's kind of, it's called, there's a couple names for it. Uh, the openness of God is one name, open theism. They believe the future is open, and therefore God cannot fully know the future. They would say God is omniscient in that he knows only what can be known. So they redefine omniscience there. Uh, so here's a quote from a guy named David Bassinger. He's a, he, he believes this too, and he says this. He says, since God does not necessarily know exactly what will happen in the future, it is always possible that even that which God, in his unparalleled wisdom, believes to be the best course of action at any given time, may not produce the anticipated results in the long run. Now, let me explain what's being said there. Even though God is really smart, even though God is unmatched in all the universe in his wisdom, God might believe something, that believe that something is the best course of action that is actually wrong. It might produce different results than what God had anticipated. In other words, God can be wrong. That, that is an incredible statement about God. And to be honest, it, I mean, it, that is, it, it's reckless is what it is, and it, it's what I like to call uh, garbage. Yeah. Uh, God says in Isaiah, I declare the future from the past, and, and the open theists will say, well, yeah, yeah, that's true, you can declare what you want, but you could be wrong. This thinking, uh, just to give you a little history on it, history, um, it, it kind of was an came up in the 70s. It kind of became popular in 1990 with an article in Christianity Today. And then they kind of attempted to get into evangelical theology in the 90s until the year 2000 when the Evangelical Theological Society rejected it as a false teaching. Um, it's silly is what it is. And to be honest with you, from my perspective, anyone, whether it's a teacher, scholar, pastor, it doesn't matter, um, anyone who believes it and teaches it, uh, because it, it messes with so much, so many other aspects of theology and truths about God, they really should be removed from an influence within the church. God knows the future, and, he, and Obadiah proves it. He said Edom would be wiped out, and the Israelites would return, and guess what happens? Guess what happens? Exactly what God promised, not because God predicted it, but because God declared it. He's the one that made it happen. God knows the future because he writes it. Edom was decimated and Israel was restored. Beyond all belief, beyond all expectations, Israel was destroyed and ripped apart. The people were, were taken, uh, taken captive and they were kind of enslaved. Their, their king was, was turned into a mockery. And Edom was decimated. After 70 A.D., there's no mention of, of the, even the, the Edomians anywhere in the world. They just disappear from history. 
just like God said they would. But the Bible, the Bible claims not only that God knows the future, but that he ordains the future. In other words, that he makes it happen. He's the one that does it. Which brings us really to the next attribute presented in Obadiah, which is that God is sovereign. Okay, God is sovereign. Uh, God is omniscient and God is sovereign. This is your second blank. Uh, if you have the, uh, the little notes, um, let's read verses 2 to 4 of Obadiah. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice in verse 4 the word Lord. Look at verse 4. Find the word Lord there. It's right at the, at the very last word in verse 4. Lord, L-O-R-D. It's in all caps. Okay? Uh, that's important. It's important because it signifies the name of God that the original author used, okay? And the name that the original author, Obadiah, uses here is Yahweh, right? In all caps, when anytime really in the, in the, uh, in the Bible, when you see the word Lord in all caps, it means that, that Yahweh is the word used there. Okay, but if you look back at verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, right there at the beginning. Look at the word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But then look at the next word, God, Lord God. God is all caps, okay? So this is telling us something about the names of God that is used here, okay? Uh, this is a translation, verse 1, a specific name of God. This is Adonai Yahweh. That's the word being used there in verse 1. So in verse 1, it's Adonai Yahweh. In verse 4, it's Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh means uh, uh, Lord God, right? That, that's what we see. Adonai means uh, Lord, Master, Sovereign One, One who is in charge. Okay, that, that's the title. Okay, Adonai, Master, Lord, right? And God, God obviously is referring to Yahweh there, which is usually translated to all caps L-O-R-D. Yahweh is the name that God gave to Moses. When Moses is there at the burning bush and he says, well, who, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God says, you go tell, you go tell Pharaoh, I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. It's and Yahweh kind of means like existence. He's the God who is. There's nothing in the universe more certain than that God is. And so here's his name as, as Yahweh. And at the beginning of the book, it says Adonai Yahweh. So as he reveals himself in Scripture, the name that is used about God uh, is, is kind of telling something specific to his character in that moment. So as the author of the scriptures are, are trying to convey something about God, they'll use a specific name here. And so we see that in verse 1 and in verse 4. Now, in this book, it opens up saying, I am who I am, and I am in charge. I am who I am, and, and, and I'm God. I'm, I'm the master. That's what's being communicated in verse 1. That's what, that's what I am, Adonai Yahweh. Now, this emphasizes again something else. God is the one who's in control. God is not just because he's powerful and strong, but he's in control. Notice the language in both verse 2 and in verse 4. I will. In verse 4, I will. Right? It's not 
just that God has seen the future of Edom. It's not just that he's aware of what's going to occur. He's making it happen. He's warning them, saying, look out. Here's what I'm going to do. It's not as though he's just some powerful psychic. Hey, you better look out because it looks like this is going to happen to you. No. He's saying, I've seen what's going to happen to you because I'm the one that's doing it. I'm the one that's going to do it. I'm the one that is already considering it done. I'm in charge. I am God. This universe, this world, this creation is mine because I'm God. Adonai Yahweh. Isaiah, going back to Isaiah 46. I'll start with verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And there's an, a group of theologians who, who don't believe this either, right? Um, they believe that God is in control of most everything, most things, uh, but not of people, that God doesn't control people, all right? God can control everything, but not really people and not really what they do or what they believe, right? And so some will say that God has kind of limited himself in this manner, that, that he has done it, okay? But the Edomites we're a perfect example of God being in charge, and, and really it's a perfect example of God's election. The fact that there are living, breathing Israelites today and no Edomites today is a, is a perfect example of God's election. God chose the Israelites. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. He did not choose the Edomites. God chose. It didn't just naturally happen that way. It didn't just happen to occur. God chose. That's election. Look, I don't think that anyone should build their, it's called soteriology. That's, uh, that's um, the study of salvation. I don't think anyone should build their soteriology on the book of Obadiah alone. And so Paul mentions this in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, which really is kind of the Mount Everest of soteriology, he says this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the thing. Obadiah is kind of like a footnote for Romans 9. Okay, you look at Romans 9. If you're reading Romans 9, maybe you've got a good study Bible. You've got a MacArthur study Bible or ESV or, or Reformation, whatever study Bible it is that you have. A life application, that's another one. Um, they've got some good notes, good commentaries. I recommend study Bibles, right? But I always like to remind people, by the way, that if you're reading a study Bible, there's a line in the page, and what's below that line is not inspired. That's just some smart guy who got asked to comment on what the Bible is saying. What's above that line is the inspired word of God. Okay, just always remember that. All right, so anyway, you read Romans 9 in your Bible or study Bible, and it should have a footnote when you get to Romans 9 that says, look at Obadiah, read Obadiah. Because Obadiah is evidence for what Paul is saying here. Obadiah shows us God's sovereignty in action. This leads us 
really to our next attribute. And by the way, God's sovereignty, there, there's, there's healthy disagreement on how God's sovereignty plays itself out in this world, but, but no one really disagrees that God is sovereign. No, no one really disagrees, that other, than, other than a minority, that, that God is sovereign over his creation. But this leads us into our next attribute. God is just. God is sovereign, or God is omniscient. God is sovereign, and God is just. That's your third little blank on your, on your bulletin. God is just. Look at Obadiah 10. We'll read verses uh, 10 and 11. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. This is a prophecy that says what the Edomites had done, what will come back and bite them in the rear end. Look at, look at verse 16. Oh, let's read 15 and 16. For as the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, as, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on, on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. That's incredible. It didn't look like it at the time. Remember that the, the Jews were in utter defeat, hopeless. They, they were, nearly all of them were killed violently, horribly, right? And it didn't look like it at the time, but God is going to reverse this. God is going to reverse their judgment, right? Because he's just. God always serves justice eventually, we might not like his timeline. We might not think that he's quick enough to bring justice on the people who, who oppose us. But God always brings justice. Verse 10 of Obadiah, because of the violence done to your brother, to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. God hadn't forgotten the sins that the Edomites had committed. And, and we read the scriptures. You can find what the Edomites had done generation after generation. God had not forgotten. He doesn't forget sins. He doesn't forget the sins that anyone commits. God doesn't just let sin go off unchecked. The scriptures are clear about this. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, verse 14, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Then Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. When you're telling someone about the gospel, you're sharing the gospel with them and, uh, and trying to explain it. They tell you they think that they're going to heaven. This happens with people who you know, just don't think about spiritual things, really. They're just kind of atheist or agnostic or however they want to describe themselves. Um, they'll tell you, yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven. You say, well, why, why, are, why do you think you're going to heaven if, if, you know, if you don't believe in Christ and you don't repent of your sins? They'll say, well, I'm a good person. I, I'm, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I'm a good guy. I haven't murdered anyone. Like, okay, you're not a murderer. Congratulations, right? Good job. You've not, you've not murdered anyone. Okay, you're better than Jeffrey Dahmer. Congratulations, right? But the response is, okay, have you ever lied? Have you ever had a hateful thought? Have you ever been envious of your neighbor and, and what they have? 
Have you ever been discontent with your wages? Have you ever worried about the future and not trusted God to provide for you? These are all things that the Bible says are not glorifying to God, each and every one of them. You might not have murdered anyone. Congratulations, you're better than other people, right? But you have sinned. You have failed. Sin is not just an oopsie-daisy, a small mistake, a, a, I wish I would have known better. Sin is a rebellion against the good and righteous God of heaven. Are, are, you, are you hoping that God is just going to overlook your sins, even though his word, even though he specifically says that he won't? But is that what your hope is? is? Is that what you're trusting in? That God will go against his word and not count your sin against you? Is, is, that where you, is that what you're relying on? Because that is, a, that is a shaky place to be. That, that house is built on sand. If you're going to tell me that, that you're relying on the fact that God is just going to overlook your sins, I'm telling you and I can show you where his word tells you that he will not do that. Is that really your hope for salvation? Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of earth. Revelation 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. When God does judge the world, Christ returns and, and everything is, is coming to be, no one will say he's gone too far. People get what they deserve from God. And that might comfort you when you think about all the evil people in the world today. All the, all the murderers and people that do horrible things, it might comfort us to say that, that God is going to bring judgment. But it should get your attention because we might get what we deserve. Have you considered that? Have you considered that maybe God is going to judge you because of your sin? But thankfully, there's another attribute of God that Obadiah mentions. And that is that God is merciful. If we only looked at God's justice or ended the reading in verse 10 we'd be in trouble. But God is merciful. That's number four. God is omniscient, God is sovereign, God is just, and God is merciful. Verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. He's saying to the Edomites, don't gloat over what the Israelites are going through. Well, one thing I don't think I, I was very clear over the last three weeks. Um, what the Israelites uh, were going through is horrible and it was awful. It was a defeat. But the reason why it happened was because God was bringing his judgment on Israel. That's, that's why, right? Uh, their destruction was God's judgment. The reason Jerusalem was sacked was because of their sin, their idolatry. God allowed it to happen, right? So Israel got what it deserved in a sense. They were defeated and, and God had fulfilled the prophecies about what would occur, Look in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. He's saying to the Edomites, you shouldn't have gotten involved. 
You should have stayed out of this thing. This had nothing to do with you, and you sinfully seized on an opportunity to oppress your brothers. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escaped, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So in other words, God had promised Israel that there would be a way out for them, that that wouldn't be the end of their people. There would be survivors, and he wasn't going to destroy Israel completely like he was going to do to the Edomites. He punished them, they severely punished them, but ultimately they ended up repenting. They did. They ended up repenting for a time. I mean, they, they didn't live perfectly after that. And the difference is, though, that Edom never repented. Israel did a lot of terrible things. They disobeyed in a lot of horrific ways. They involved themselves in plenty of sin, and God judged them. But the remnant repented. Israel repented, and God always responds to repentance because he's merciful. And in his mercy, he always responds. Repentance is basically... You admit what you're doing is wrong. You admit the sin, right? And you, you turn from your sin and you worship God appropriately, how he demands to be worshiped, okay? You confess, you turn away from your sin, you, and you worship God. God never refuses a person who asks for forgiveness. That's a promise that we see in his word. When we seek forgiveness, God always grants it. That's a great comfort coming out of Obadiah. It's a great comfort coming out of a book that is not all that comforting all the time when we read it at face value. The prophecy is to the Enemites, but there's this message to the Jews who would repent, and, and to be honest with you, the application is the same for all of us. Anyone who repents will be forgiven. That's incredible. It really is. Romans chapter 10, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is an incredible verse or a couple of verses of assurance. Everyone, everyone, you don't have to be a Jew to call on the name of the Lord. You don't. I, I suppose you could be an Edomite. The problem with the Edomites is that they wouldn't call on the name of the Lord. They didn't do it. They were prideful, remember? Don't be somebody who's so stuck on yourself that re you refuse to call on the name of the Lord. That you'll gloat and take pride in yourself rather than confess your sin and turn from it. And we do this all the time. It's not just the Edomites who are guilty of that. We say, well, yeah, but it, if you knew the circumstances, then, then you'd realize that this wasn't really a sin. I know it looks like a sin, but really I'm justified in that. Really, if you, if you just look at the circumstances, you would know that I'm not obligated to do those things. It wasn't really gossip because it was true. I was just telling someone I thought would need to know. So of course it's not gossip. And no, it's, it's not slander. It might be true. I, I, I heard it from someone who's pretty reliable. I don't have to share the gospel. I'm really shy. That's not something that I, that I have to. I know the Bible says that I have to and I have to love people, but I just don't want to talk to people. It makes me feel awkward. Don't be someone who justifies your sin. Don't be an Edomite. 
Don't be someone who, who gives lip service to what the scriptures tell you to do or, or, or tell you to stay away from. Sin is sin. And rather than justify it, rather than give an excuse of why it's not really sin in this one particular case, confess it and repent. Don't gloat. Instead, embrace the mercy that's available to you. Cry out for it. God loves to grant mercy. God's not looking for righteous people to bless because there are no righteous people. The Scriptures tell us that. The Scriptures tell us that our good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. The Scripture in the New Testament says, No one is righteous, no, not one. God is looking for the sinners who need a Savior. And that can be you. Because I can promise you this, I know that this is true, you are a sinner and you need a Savior. That is absolutely true of every single person in this room. Matthew chapter 12 says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's an incredible description of our Lord. If you've ever seen a, a smoldering candle, right? It, it just kind of makes smoke and it stinks. It's annoying. So what do you do? You lick your fingers and you tss, right? Or if you've got one of those fancy ones that cost too much money at the mall, you just put a lid on it right? and put it out. When Christ sees you smoldering or broken by sin, he doesn't just come by and break you destroy you, put you out. No, he reignites that flame. That's what the scriptures say about our Savior. He's kind and he's gentle and he's merciful. He's just and he's sovereign and he's omniscient. You can't hide anything from him. If you're broken in your sin, that's the time to run to Jesus. If you're broken in your sin, you're hopeless, you don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do, you feel like it's consuming you, that's the time to confess and run to Christ. It's not the time to hunker down and, and, and take it on as an individual. Isolate yourself from your church. No, it's the time to confess and cry out for mercy. And he'll give it. Because God is kind and God is good. That's one of the most beautiful things about our God. Regardless of who we are, what we've done, there is nothing that will eliminate us from God's mercy. There is nothing that we can do that, that God says, you know what? He's too wicked. She's too awful. I'm not interested. No. None of us are righteous. We are all sinners, and each and every one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. Christ is the perfect Savior. I challenge to you today, if you're lost in sin, broken in sin, hopeless in sin, don't know where to turn, don't know where to find help, confess that sin, don't gloat in it, and run to Christ. Beg for mercy. Salvation is free to, <laughs> excuse me, is free to you, but it's not free. And elders, if you want to move forward, Christ died Christ died for the sins that you committed. 
to deal with, with the rebellion in your own heart. And he paid a heavy price. While it might be free to you, salvation, salvation came at a deep cost to our Lord. The scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, uh, starting with verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ died for our sins. When Christ was on the cross, our sins went to him and his righteousness came to us. But his body was torn apart. It wasn't recognizable. His blood was spilled. That's why when, when you come up and you tear that piece of bread off, that, that should remind you of Christ's body being torn apart. And as you, as you take the cup, that should remind you of Christ's blood being spilled for your sins. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's, it's certainly a celebration, but it's a somber one because we're reminded of our own sin, of our own rebellion, our own wicked hearts. So the Lord's Supper is a time to reflect, spend time in prayer, confess your sins. Don't gloat over them. Don't sit, don't sit here in pride. Confess your sins to the Lord. If there's a sin that you need to confess to someone in this room, feel free to stand up and talk to them. If, if you need to offer forgiveness to someone in this room, feel free to do that. If you have children and you need to explain what's going on, feel free to do that. We encourage it, actually. We do ask that if you have not put your faith in Christ, that you don't partake in the Lord's Supper. And if, if that's you, if, if, if you've not put your faith in Christ, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We, if you have any questions, I would love to answer them for you, whether it be after the service or I'll take you out to coffee this week. I would love to meet with you and discuss what it means that when we say that Christ died for your sins. But if, you don't, if, if you've not put your faith in Christ, we ask that you don't partake because we believe that that would be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It doesn't make sense for you to celebrate the fact that Christ died for your sins if you don't believe that he did. And so we ask that you stay seated while we celebrate. We come up the middle aisle and then you'll go around the sides and if you need someone to bring you the elements, we would be more than happy to do that. The reminder is that Christ died for your sins because he is merciful and kind. It's beautiful.